Welcome to the Hammer and Quill, Season 3, Episode 4, a conversation about missionary encounters. You're tuning into our Bonhoeffer House podcast, where this season we're all about advancing a model or what we like to call a vibe. Vibe. A vibe for engaging culture with the theological vision and without, we hope, losing our souls. This is Season 3, Episode 4, where we're going to talk about missionary encounters and Leslie Newbegin uh, in particular. But before we get into missionary encounters, it's March, which means it's March Madness. Has your bracket been completely destroyed? Uh, did you pick Purdue to win the whole thing? I picked, did you? I picked Purdue to you win did. the whole thing. Yours is gone. It was gone real yeah, fast. Real fast. Yeah, the first, the first, uh, first night, huh? First I night. think this is the craziest March Madness that I've ever experienced. I do think it's the only time that we've ever had a 16 and a 15 seed win in the first weekend, and and a Our 15 seed. Keep going. On to the Sweet 16. Is we, that right? Yeah. Is that Princeton? That's Princeton. We've had... Man. We've had They're smart. Two, two number ones are already out. Two number two ones number are out. Two number twos, right? Arizona and... Or maybe it's only Arizona. Anyways. These teams. It's been crazy. It's crazy. I, like, I remember... I, sorry, Jesse. I remember the UMBC... Oh, it's okay. I didn't Win. go to UVA. I didn't get in. <laughs> I'm a Radford Highlander. But I remember, all the way. I remember watching that game and oh, being sure. like, "This is the most insane thing. This, this will never happen again." It happened, and then it happened. It happened again. by a worse team than UMBC than the Golden Retrievers. Yeah, they were worse. They were the 68th team. It's crazy. They, they had to win a play-in. They were the shortest team in Division One. Did you know that? I did not know that. Yeah, shortest team in Division One. The worst team. Yeah, they were the worst team by far. I made fun of them. You said that there's no way a team called Fairly Dickinson <laughs> yeah. could win a game. I was like, they they but don't even you know have, what you said. They don't you even said, have an abbreviation, right? You said I remember this. You said if the, if they abbreviated to just FDU, then they might have a chance. And I when I turned the game on, yeah, there was Purdue and FDU, and I was like, oh, they've got this is they've it. got a shot. They've got a shot. <laughs> yeah, I was like, if they, you know, if they. If if UMBC had been called University of Maryland Baltimore College, they would not have won that game. Right, because that's just too much. You can't. Yeah, but UMBC can can beat UVA. Mm. What's FDU's mascot? Were they the Owls? The Knights. Oh, the Knights. That's pretty good. Yeah, that's pretty good. Well, they took down the Boilermakers <laughs> they took, they took and down. destroyed Michael's <laughs> bracket. Yep. My family does a family kind of everybody kicks in a dollar and uh, okay. grandkids, cousins, a bunch of people. There's 49 people in it. And my son, Elijah, well, let me back up and say, I picked four brackets and assigned them to each of my kids. <laughs> Cheater. Because, well, they don't know anything. <laughs> they, don't, we, they don't know anything. Yeah. So I let them pick their champion. Okay. And then, uh, and then I just picked the brackets. So essentially, I just picked four different brackets. Who did they pick to win? Elijah picked um, Kansas. So that was a heartbreaking loss. Correct. <laughs> Especially because he's still in first place. Oh, and he would wow. be running away with it. Wow. I mean, well, totally destroying everyone. You would. You would I would. <laughs> technically, I would be running away with it. So we've got a Kansas. We've got a... Um, it's, we're not going to win. None Duke, of, none Silas of picked Duke. Silas picked Duke. They're yeah. He's, he's still doing pretty well. Does anyone but, have a champion that's still alive? Yeah. Evie has... Um, 
Gonzaga. Okay. And uh, Hattie has, ooh, uh, let's see. Champion for Hattie is Houston. Okay. So that they they had a scare. They did. Yeah. We're not gonna win anything. It's okay. <laughs> it's okay. it's a crazy bracket. Yep. So well, you know. I'm kind of moved on to women's basketball right now. Go Hokies. Because the Hokies look real fun. Yeah. They look real good. They're going to win it all. I Can they beat South Carolina? I, I mean, don't know I, much about women's I think basketball. That, I think they could beat anyone. They look like it. The, that game, it felt like every time Elizabeth Kitley got the ball, she was getting mauled. I was like, why aren't they calling fouls? <laughs> but it's okay. Go Hokies. We, we pulled through. Oh, yeah. Go Hokies. Well, we've got a lot going on in the in the house right now. So we've got some house happenings. One of the more fun things was we had our friend, our friend, our very dear friend, Craig Robinson. Shout out to Craig. Craig. Shout out to Craig and Zoe at the Cairn in the Bow Valley. Yes. Where it's probably like negative 50 degrees today. Is that true? I don't know. <laughs> are, you just, are you just saying general? I'm saying Canada general things. things, Canada things. It's cold there in the Canadian Rockies. But Craig yeah. was here. He came here for a week to visit Morgan, and uh, which, by the way, how wonderful is it that Morgan is home? Morgan's home. Morgan is home. So a lot of you guys have uh, followed along with the story. Morgan is doing well, um, which means for us, it's a good thing. I mean, it's good. Yeah, it's good that Morgan's doing well. Yes. But you, our listeners, will be happy that Holly will one day soon, we hope, be back. Bringing balance to the force. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. She's planning to jump in. We miss Holly. We need, you know, there's like a lack of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Virtue? <laughs> Around the table when Holly's not here? Yeah. We, there's a lack. There's a lack of something. Something is missing. So Craig was here. That was big. We had a feast night, which we do twice a semester, where we invite everybody in uh, in our region to come and have a, have a dinner. Uh, what else have we had going on in our house happenings, Michael? Yeah, we hosted a Q&A on hospitality as evangelism. With oh, our, that was fun. Our friends at Crew at Virginia Shout Tech. Shout out to Crew at VT at Tech. That was fun. Yeah. So we got to we got to provide some pizza and some drinks and and you gave a little uh yeah a little short lecture on hospitality and then got some questions which was really cool it was cool that was fun i, think, I hope we do it again i think they really liked your reading from uh edith schaefer yeah yeah the story yeah. of providing a meal and and prayer it's beautiful maybe maybe we'll read from it in a future episode when we're talking about uh, putting this into practice yeah and especially thinking about how to wrap hospitality up into a, a model or a vibe for, <laughs> yeah. for engaging culture. Yeah, we also had this this thing recently we did with the uh, state convention, the SBCV. It was kind of a multi-partner deal where we did a seminary for a day, a, a sort of a snapshot of what it would look like to go to seminary at Southeastern. So Southeastern, uh, the SBCV, Cave Spring Baptist Church, one of our founding partner churches for the Bonhoeffer House, and uh, they served as the host for this. We had Dr. Chuck Quarles come. He's a New Testament uh, biblical scholar at Southeastern, and man, that was really fun. He, he, he Well, it was really solid. It was really, there was a lot of engagement. Uh, we brought 10 
people from the New River Valley up to this, yeah. which was really fun to, to see. And uh, really positive, you know, interactions and, and feelings about that. So that was fun. I think it was super cool for people to basically see uh, a little glimpse into what we do. Right. Um, not, you know, like th- this is what a classroom environment looks like. This is what getting graduate level theological training locally looks like. Um, and so, yeah, I, I was, it was very cool that we had lay leaders and, and church faithful church members, um, from some of our partner churches who, who got to see and experience that. And I, I heard, I only heard good feedback from those people. So that's right. That's right. And, uh, you know, the, 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 the thing that I was really encouraged by was how hungry and thirsty people were for, um, for that kind of seminary or, or graduate level engagement with the text. Mm. A lot of people, I had a lady who was in her, uh, in her seventies, uh, tear up at the end hmm. to just say, man, I love studying my Bible and to have an opportunity to learn a little bit more how to go into depth and how to study the word. is just, it's just really beautiful. That's awesome. So, one more thing yeah. that I'm really excited about yeah. is we've got a group of Harbor Network pastors, some who I'm friends with, some whom I've, I've never met, coming to the beautiful Appalachian Blue Ridge Mountains <laughs> to spend a week with us coming up in April. So we've got some guys coming in from all over Portland area, Oregon. It's all Portland, I think. It's either Portland or <laughs> Rainforest. Uh, uh, Portland area, Ohio, which is the same as Indiana. Yeah. I've decided. Yeah. <laughs> Ohio, we've got Pittsburgh, Birmingham, Alabama, uh, Louisville, all coming here to do some kind of just observation time with uh, with our observing our seminary partnership with Southeastern and our uh, church planting residency time. We've got actually a really fun uh, uh, cohort training time planned that, uh, that mm. week with Charles Wilson, our friend at the Hill Church in Roanoke on multi-ethnic and multicultural leadership. Mm. So this is going to be fun. We, here, I'm telling you, the things that I'm excited about with this is we get a chance, I get a chance to take these guys both through a tour of what we're doing uh-huh. and then into a kind of um, an overnight renewal retreat where we're going to, I'm leading them into some, they, they don't know this. Okay. Uh, they, well, they know some of this, but I'm going to lead them into some time of um, silence, solitude, and uh, and prayer together before mm. we... Uh, we actually take some time to hit some streams for some fly. It's a fly fishing retreat. Awesome. Some of the guys have are, are avid fly fishermen and are excited for an opportunity to come out and catch some native Virginia brook trout. And some of them are um, just, I think, happy to be along for the ride. <laughs> but that's going to be something fun we've got coming up. Awesome. All right. So this... This time, what we are talking about is missionary encounters. And what we're hoping to do in this time is is to set out a kind of um, like a vision for 
approaching our sort of surrounding culture through the eyes of missionaries. We want to, and what we mean by that, or what I mean by that, is not uh, not necessarily like, um, well, let's talk about it like this. So you've got some of this idea of uh, missionary encounters is drawn from the work in the life of Leslie Newbegin. Newbegin was a 20th century British missiologist and theologian who spent uh, decades uh, doing ministry in India and away from his home in England. When he returned, he was he was kind of, you know, you, there's a culture shock. And he, I remember coming back from um, even just a, a month of overseas mission work. Mm. And there's a culture shock when you get back, right? I mean, um, for me, there was a culture shock just being in like a Walmart. Like this is this is the height of my culture is <laughs> is the this place that I'm in and it's very different. But but for for Newbegin there was a culture shock around how much um, had shifted, mm. kind of underfoot without anyone knowing. You know when you're when you're kind of living in the middle of it, um, you don't notice when things are changing, right? Like uh, when yeah, I, I'm around my kids all the time and they're growing like weeds. But I don't notice because from day to day they're just they just look the same. Right. But when my when my parents get around them, right, my mom sees them, it's like, whoa, you're four inches taller than you were three months ago. Mm. And so the same thing happened. Newbegin came back from the mission field and realized uh, the ground had really shifted, and people weren't aware of it. Right. So, um, and so he he came back and really kind of coined this idea of. Uh, missionary encounters with our own culture. So what we want to do is um, follow his lead. I'm not a Newbegin scholar. Really, if you want to um, read more on Newbegin, I would recommend reading Newbegin. So the foolishness uh, to, to the Greeks would be a good start. Um, but you could also read Michael Goheen is a great guide for Newbegin's life and thinking. In particular, uh, he's got a book called the, vo- the Church and Its Vocation, Leslie Newbegin's Missionary Ecclesiology. So those would be a couple places to start. Um, and, and I'm no Newbegin scholar, so we're not going to do too much on Newbegin other than, the, than to sort of uh, leap off of his thinking and writing as an inspiration. And, and one of the things that he wanted to r- sort of um, recover is a sense of urgency for engaging our particular culture in the West— an urgency for engaging our neighbors. Mm. This urgency is really in part because of uh, modernism or post-modernity, as recognizing that modernism and post-modernity is is sort of um, emerging from, or has emerged from, a Christianized West, right? So you've got this, um, you know, we live in a time that is uh, in a place that's been built upon a kind of Christianizing of the of of the Western world, and yet, uh, what has come out of that is a is a rejection of the roots of the Christianizing or uh, Christian influences, um, and so so we've got this uh, you know this urgency of 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 looking around and recognizing, according to Newbegin, that that the greatest threat to Christianity is actually. Modernity or our own culture. Newbegin says this the church is awakening slowly to the fact that modernity is the most powerful enemy it has faced in its 2,000 years of history. Now that's crazy. Yeah. 
That's crazy. What do you think? Do you think that's right? <laughs> I mean, it's at least on the surface really strong. That's a strong statement. <laughs> that's a strong statement. I mean, we've had emperors that are just like burning Christians at the stake, uh-huh. right? Lighting up the the streets of Rome with the with the burnt bodies of Christians. And yet Newbegin would say that was less of a of a threat because it was not subtle. It was it was overt, right? Mm-hmm. There's it's sort of um, cauterized, right? The burning cauterized the young Christian movement. So the so the Christians yeah. knew, hey, if I'm if I become a Christian, this is what's going to happen to me. And so it sort of drew people that were willing to actually follow Jesus all the way through, right? Sacrificially. Yeah, take up your cross and follow me. And what Newbigin says about uh, modernity or our particular kind of surrounding culture in the West is that it's a culture that's resistant to the gospel and is purposeful in relegating religion out of the public square and into the cultural margins. This is what makes it a... Uh, a great threat is it's resistance. So think about it this way. When you get, um, you know, uh, say you have the flu uh, you, or, or let's just say you get a vaccine, you've, you've gotten your flu shot. And that means in theory that you are resistant to the flu, right? You've got a little dose of the flu in you. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm not a scientist, <laughs> uh, but I think, you know, you get this little kind of, you get inoculated. Uh-huh. And that inoculation makes you immune, uh-huh. in theory, to the actual thing, right? So, so uh, what Newbegin, and this is, I think, is so brilliant, is to, to recognize that our culture is inoculated to the gospel because it has a little bit of it, mm. right? That, that there's this kind of remaining sense of, yeah, I know, I know all that stuff. Yeah. Um, and so... So there's this sort of, and even even the fact that a lot of our neighbors have grown up in the church or church adjacent, especially here in the South, is is in in a sense makes them more resistant to right. the witness of the gospel or the power of the gospel uh, because they've been inoculated. Now at the same, so there's that resistance, but there's also a purposeful activity among those who have positions of power in the culture to relegate religion out of the public public square and into the cultural margins. And so this makes uh, this makes kind of um, the, 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 the power of the gospel is often sort of emptied uh, because the church has, in a, in a sense, sort of embraced, like, oh, yeah, it's fine. You know, like, we'll kind of cozy up with the culture um, or cozy up with, with kind of cultural powers mm-hmm. and not, not aware of the fact that what's actually happening is an inoculation. Mm. So... Uh, Newbegin comes back and he's like, "Hey, listen, wake up! Yeah, we need to wake up." The you know the, in other words, just because we can vote someone into office, we meaning Christians or Protestants or Evangelicals or whatever kind of category we want to use, mm-hmm. doesn't mean that actually uh, we're we're doing anything to change the world. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean that we're actually engaging with culture in a meaningful way, or at least not as missionaries. Mm. And so when you think about being a missionary, right, you think about you go somewhere and what do you do? What's the first thing you do if you, if, you know, Michael, you got dropped into China. What do you do? Learn the language, learn the culture. Okay, what, you're what learning language. And when you say learn the culture, what does that mean? Yeah, what, what do people care about? Um, what, what brings them joy? What makes them angry? What, uh, what do they, they kind of form their life around? Okay, like, what are people forming their life around? What makes them happy? What makes them mad? Yeah. That's right. What places do they go to? Where where do they uh, where do they hang out? 
Um, what stories do they, do they share? Uh, yeah, that's right. And if you went to China and you were like, listen, I don't need to learn anything here. You'd be a fool. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, if you went to China and you were like, listen, I've eaten Chinese food every day of my whole life. Every day I eat General So's chicken. Yeah. So I don't actually need to learn anything. You'd be a fool. Now, now you'd even probably be a fool if you went from Southwest Virginia to like, I don't know, uh, Boston. Yeah. And you were like, yeah, what do I need? I'm, I'm American. Yeah. I don't need to learn Boston. <laughs> I, I, know, I know how these people work. I've seen Goodwill Hunting. Yeah. <laughs> that doesn't work. Like if you're, and it can work if, you're, if, you're, if you don't care about being a missionary. Right. If you don't care about uh, bringing any kind of meaningful gospel witness, then sure, yeah, you can just say, I've watched a movie and you know, I've eaten the food and I'm good to go. But really what we want to recover is the sense that we need to be more than just good students of our Bibles. We do. But we also need to be good students or exegetes of our culture. Mm-hmm. We need to sort of em- we need to embrace the call to learn about our neighbors, learn our place, learn what makes people tick. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you can think about this in terms of Second Corinthians five, which says this, starting with. Uh, verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And, and here's the key, entrusting to us, the me- now, by the way, the us there, I think, is modifying if anyone is in Christ. So I don't think this just means Paul saying professional missionaries like me. I think he's saying, uh, if if you're in Christ, mm. then, uh, oh, keep going, uh, he is entrusting to us the message of reconciliation, in other words, the gospel. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now, you know, what we would say you should do if you were called to be a vocational missionary someone else, what, what we're saying you should also do wherever you are right now today. Mm-hmm. Learn your culture. Be a student of your culture. This is what it means to be. You cannot encounter your cu- culture as a missionary or as an ambassador with a message of reconciliation if, you, if you're not a student of your culture. So mm-hmm. uh, some of the things that I think we want to advance here is that, one, being a good student or exegete of our culture requires learning the story, mm-hmm. right? So, uh, you know, Alistair McIntyre said, said that before we can understand or know the answer to the question, what should we do? We need to know the answer to the question of which story am I a part of? Mm-hmm. I think that's right, right? Like uh, for us, we need to learn the story, learn the un- underlying story of our culture. And we can, we can start really broad, right? We would learn the story of, um, say, how we got where we are in terms of enlightenment. Right, so enlightenment, even that word, enlightenment, what does that make you think of, Michael? Uh, You were in the dark, and now you have clarity, you have understanding, you've you've, uh, ascended to a higher plane. (laughs) Right, yeah, so... You have what you need now. And so when you think about, like, uh, um, you know, the enlightenment project of modernity... What was what were they kind of seeing the light coming out of? What was the dark ages? 
Yeah, I mean, mid medieval religion, uh, and uh, I guess belief in like we we need someone else to reveal the the truth of the world to us. We need something outside of ourselves. Like, um, yeah, that's right. Like, like you know, even just that that idea of thinking about the the medieval times. We're we're really talking about a thousand years. Yeah. Of history in the West, yeah, and the Enlightenment recast that thousand years as the Dark Ages, yeah, right, and and of course some of this was good, you know, in the sense of, um, you know, even the the kind of uh, to the sources, you know, the the idea of recovering that I don't need, you know, instead of sitting in in a in a Latin Mass and trusting to this priest to be the kind of mediator between me and God, where things are just sort of floating over my head because I don't know Latin. Yeah. And because I I I have this sort of second level or or a uh a, a once removed relationship with God. Yeah. Uh, recovering the sources and even learning to read and bringing the the gospel and bringing the Bible into people's language uh was I think a good thing. But casting a thousand years of uh Christianization of the West as a dark ages Mm-hmm. Um, tells you something about kind of uh, the the story we find ourselves in. So the Enlightenment recast the Christianiz- Christianization of the West as this sort of Dark Ages. There's some there's some threads that kind of weave their way through Enlightenment thinking. Um, one is progress. Yeah, you know the only thing the only thing that we can be certain of really is that in the past it was worse, and in the future it's going to be better. Where do you do you see this? Am I am I making this up, Michael? No, no. I, I mean. I, that that feels like one of the most uh, prominent cultural assumptions of our time. Yeah, like we obviously things are better now. Obviously, we're the smartest people who have ever lived. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. There's progress. Wendell Berry talks about this um, in his uh, essay on uh, the a writer and his region. I think I'll try to figure that out. Um, he talks about, uh, it's kind of like C.S. Lewis when Lewis talks about chronological snobbery mm-hmm. and his intro to Athanasius uh, on the Incarnation. Uh, Barry describes this as um, historical self-righteousness, mm. uh, that we look back, and no matter where we kind of are, we think we've progressed, we're better than. Yeah. If you put me back then, I wouldn't be doing the things that they were doing. Those sins, I wouldn't do those things. Yeah. Um, and so we, and we really, we have a lot of hope in where we're going. We have hope. We're going to get better. We're going to have progress. Now, I do think that um, uh, climate fears, there, there have been changes where I'm starting to notice in younger folks a little bit more of a sort of fear. This happened 100 years ago, right? Coming out mm. of uh, the First World War, where suddenly it was like, wait a minute, um, are we sure we're going towards utopia? <laughs> and and I think that there's some questioning of this, but generally speaking, a, a hope in progress. A second thread is science. We have the we have just a kind of religious hope, almost a a scientism in in the Enlightenment. Another one is technology. These things work together, right? Technology. Uh, we we really do put a lot of hope in technique and technology. If I can just mm-hmm. get another gadget or thing, progress, technology, science, all going hand in hand for sure. And these are all sort of. Um, what Newbegin would say are idols of the Enlightenment, uh, things that sort of become ultimate things for us. 
another is economics, and another is politics. So at least those five threads kind of weave their way through this uh, sort of broad Western hope and and worship uh, that that would be kind of in that story of enlightenment. Uh, one thing that I think Newbigin is really helpful with is recognizing that this is a profoundly, we, we need to recognize that our neighbors, there's no such thing as a kind of enlightened, enlightened, progressive, um, secular person. In the sense of, because we've been made worshiping creatures, uh, we need to understand that there's no secular culture at all, right? So Newbegin uh, quotes an 18th century English statesman, W.E. Gladstone, uh, and he says this, the result of, of weakening of Christianity in the West, he says, the result is not, as we once imagined, a secular society. It's a pagan society. And its paganism, having been born out of the rejection of Christianity, is far more resistant to the gospel than the pre-Christian paganism with which cross-cultural missions have been familiar here, surely, is the most challenging missionary frontier of our time. So that's hundreds of years ago, mm. uh, already recognizing that that there's there's a challenge to engaging in the West because uh, we're we're not talking about pre-Christian paganism. We're talking about a reje- a, a sort of religious fervor that's born out of rejection of Christianity, which makes it more resistant to the gospel. Mm. So, you know, by the way, I want to recommend now the um, this uh, great, well, you know, it's provocative, and I don't think she's a Christian. I, I, I don't believe she's writing from a Christian perspective. I think she's a journalist, maybe, maybe a Wall Street Journal journalist. I'm not sure. Tara Isabella Burton, and she's got a provocative book called Strange Rights, and she's, she picks this argument up now, kind of analyzing, uh, as a cultural critic, analyzing our culture now. And talks about just how religious our uh, culture is now. She 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 just says instead of thinking about um, you know the the nuns n o n e s you know mm-hmm. as far as young people who choose no religious affiliation, mm-hmm. she makes an argument that 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 actually choosing no religious affiliation just means that there's no traditional religious affiliation. And this is a well-researched book that shows just how how hungry people are for some kind of religious connection. Mm. Uh, she says it's better better than calling them the nuns would be to call them the remixed, a kind of synchronistic religion of the of the internet age where you can mix and match your religious communities, you can mix and match things. Mm. Um, but she goes on to say this: um, uh, a religion that, that we've got this kind of eclectic, chaotic, and thoroughly quintessentially American religion, a religion of emotive intuition, of commodified experience, of self-creation and self-improvement, and yes, selfies, a religion for a new generation of Americans raised to think of themselves both as capitalist consumers and content creators, a religion decoupled from institutions, from creeds, from metaphysical truth claims about God or the universe or the way things are, but that still seeks in various ways to provide us with the pillars of what religion always has provided. Hmm. And then she gives, she names the meaning, purpose, community, and ritual. And so this is, this is one aspect of exegeting our cultures, recognizing that our neighbors uh, are religious like us. Yeah, that's fascinating. And they're searching for, just like we are, Meaning, purpose, community, and ritual, and you can see this, right? If you look at yeah, 
social media or if you look at you know my neighbors across the street you can see this this seeking of meaning purpose community and ritual now it again the the big difference is we have no more trust in institutions for the most part yeah. right uh the younger generation more than any is is has a distrust in institutions you could i wonder too i haven't done this michael but i wonder if you could even it would be fascinating to 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 sort of pay attention to the the the, the many revivals that are happening or awakenings or whatever they're they're being called at like Asbury and other Bible colleges and yeah. places and just track the connection or disconnection to institutions. Mm. So it's interesting that that's taking place at an institution like Asbury. Right. But it does feel very institution-less, almost like Asbury, the, it's not like the dean of students said, hey, we're going to do this. You know, there's this sort of influx of people from all over the place. It's, it's uh, anyway, just... Interesting. Just yeah. interesting. There's there's a distrust of institutions, but there's still in our neighbors a seeking after a kind of worshiping community and experience. So we need to understand the story and the sort of religious commitments of our time, of our culture, and our neighbors. And we need to recognize that uh, we are in a in a sort of religious battle. We're, we're like uh, Lewis talks about, where we've been dropped into enemy occupied territory, and so. We, you know, the, there, there is no way to sort of bring the creed of Christianity and the creed of, of, of the Enlightenment together, mm. right? We, we, there's just, these are incompatible creeds and stories. And so, um, so it, and because these are stories that talk about ultimate things, these are stories and, uh, and religious creeds that, that set forward final claims of loyalty, sort mm-hmm. of ultimate loyalty, ultimate things, and ultimately about eschatology or a vision of the good life forever. Mm-hmm. Where are you going to get the good life? Is it through this or that? And you yeah. can't, you really can't bring these things, uh, you can't synchronize them. There's always going to be a battle between the creeds and the stories of the, the gospel and of our surrounding culture as long, you know, as it's influenced by the Enlightenment and modernity. How would you summarize the those those two competing visions of the good life? Yeah, so I think I think in terms of sort of looking around at our own sort of enlightenment, modernity, or postmodern culture, we we would I would still go back to those five categories of the good life is found through some combination of progress, science, technology, economics, politics. Mm-hmm. Now oftentimes it's one of those that we kind of give our ultimate allegiance to. If I you know a trust in the economics, if we can sort of balance things out or get this or that or even personal economics or politics. If I can hitch my wagon to this politician, we have this sense of like belonging, meaning, purpose, uh, ritual, community and and this becomes the vision of the good life. Mm-hmm. Um, so if this politician is elective, elected or not arrested or whatever, uh, <laughs> then or, that those would be the kind of competing visions with the Christian vision, which is a vision of self-sacrifice. It's a vision of loyalty to King Jesus. It's mm-hmm. a vision of adoption into the family. And, and even bringing, being brought into the family of God means uh, this meaning, purpose, community, and ritual is going to be with people that on those other five threads, you might be on the exact opposite side, mm-hmm. right? But we don't really have a space for that because if my ultimate allegiance is in politics, economics, technology, science, or progress, and someone else 
is on the opposite side, mm-hmm. then they can't be part of that community. They can't. We, we our meaning and purpose is different. Our rituals are different. Right. So I think that's where where we're going to see colli- where we see collisions um, even now. Mm. And the vision of the good life in, in the Christian sense, uh, it is both progress and yeah and yep. tradition in the sense of we can't we, we you know we're we have to have a, be rooted in history even in the particular historical activity of Jesus the messiah yeah we have to um recognize that we're not um you know we're not uh rising above our forebears we're not we're sort of in this in this stream mm-hmm. of tradition. We we have received the truth once for all given and then transferred down and down and down. But there's progress because we're progressing towards an eschatological or or an end times good life where we receive the kingdom in full. Yeah. And so it's not just we're going spiraling down the drain. Yeah. We there's no there's no room for despair. Yeah. We still have to be rooted in hope or anchored in hope. So, okay. In other words, I think there's we could make the argument, and I would make the argument, not on this episode, that that the the things that we're looking for in those five threads of modernity and in the Enlightenment actually find their their true fulfillment in the Christian story and in the gospel. Mm. But these, it's a collision. Uh, it is a collision. So. Uh, all right. So, and I want to make a case, by the way, which we'll pick this up in future episodes. But I want to make the case that we should start local. As we're thinking about exegeting our culture, we could be tempted to do what we, you and I just did, which is talk about like the Enlightenment mm-hmm. or modernity or Donald Trump or Joe Biden. And it's like, I, I really need to start with what are the stories of my neighborhood? Yeah. What are the stories of my, pro- of, of my pool that I'm a part of? How did this pool get founded? What what are the stories that the shape pool? Yeah, it all comes back to the pool. Um, what are what are the stories of the schools in my town? What are what's my neighbor's story? What are the the kind of idols of my block? Do you think this is getting harder? Like as as there are more and more um, non d- disembodied communities for people to join through social media through the metaverse <laughs> you know what whatever the case is there there's like there's opportunities for people to like claim i'm part of this community that's i've never met any of these people they're just my my online friends do you think it's that's making it harder to actually exegete the the culture around us mm. and and then on the flip side i'm wondering do you think that offers us an opportunity to to provide a a more compelling vision, mm. a more compelling picture? I certainly think the answer to the first question is complicated. I think the answer to the second question is yes. Yeah. I think that we can provide, and we'll get around to this in, I think, the seventh or eighth episode where we talk about um, providing alternative communities of goodness, truth, and beauty that are actually local, local yeah. and connected to real flesh and blood people. Yeah. Um, the type of people that can actually sit by your hospital bed. Yeah. They can't just send money or, or well wishes, but they can yeah. actually hold your hand, right? Yep. So I do think that, that we have an opportunity to provide a really beautiful and compelling vision. I think the first question is difficult. Um, yeah, in some ways, 
in some ways, understanding and engaging with the kind of cultural stories and idolatries around us may be easier in the internet age in the sense of um, we certainly have more information. You just see it. I can see it. Oh, yeah. And it's really loud on social media. Yeah. So, yeah. So in some ways, you know, there are there are things that I understand that I wouldn't have understood if I was born 100 years ago, just because I wouldn't have access to people, um, to writings, to 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 cultural artifacts that I I do now. Yeah, I do think maybe a, a way to put it is it's easier, but it's worse. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so um, yeah, yeah. We can we can go into that more later in another episode. I, yeah, I, I I know we got to move on, but I I think part of part of what I'm wondering about is like it might be easier to see or it might be easier to like pinpoint, Oh, here's the, here's the belief or here's the opinion or here's the, um, idol idol. But then it feels harder to engage the actual community because it's disembodied. So like, unless I enter in online. Yeah. Like you've, in order to engage your neighbor next door, you need to do it on Facebook. Yeah. Basically. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm like, I don't want. I it don't want to feel that way. I don't want to come onto your playing true. field. Right. I. I don't think that's true. But I do think. I do think that that's the temptation of our time. Right. Is to is to even like family members. Right. You know. The, I know people who've had, just knock down, drag drag out, blow out fights with their mom because yeah. of Facebook posts. And, and yeah. And, and that's, yeah. And and that that. That I'm not saying that's invalid. <laughs> yeah, to take issue with with what somebody's saying on Facebook, I'm just saying um, sometimes those fights all remain digital. They all remain virtual. Yeah, like you know, you're putting your avatars out there to battle it out. Yeah, and I'm like, you know, you guys are gonna, you guys have dinner together. You could just have a conversation. Yeah, um, and oftentimes they stop having dinner together. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, right. I do think I think it's it's easier but worse. That's yeah. my answer. It's easier but worse. All right, so let, let's move on. All right, yeah. so, um, so I do think starting local, you know, looking around, who are your neighbors? Where and what do they worship? What are the stories of their lives? Uh, what are their particular I, the I, particular idolatries of of our place, which we participate in? So it's not just, you know, what are what are the my kind of, you know, pagan neighbors doing? But what are the what are the you know what are the ways in which we worship around here? Right. Um, I think that's important to do. Start local. In the future, I want to I want to talk about Wendell Berry. He's been influential for me in thinking about place and and locality, in particular, his vision of local adaptation, which is essentially a way of sort of saying, um, you know, well, let me let me let me just read from what this is actually a introduction to the poetry of William Carlos William Williams. Um, uh, anyway, so here's what Berry describes as local adaptation. Um, it's a personal obligation and effort. It has nothing to do with self-discovery as a single or autonomous individual. It has everything to do with discovering where one is in relation to one's place, native or chosen, to its natural and human neighbor, to its mystery and sanctity, and with discovering right ways of living and working there. Mm. Now, I think there's a place for this in terms of even just thinking about cultural um, exege- exegetical work, uh, studying your place. You can't, you, you really have to learn what, in which way does the grain flow 
in my town or city or place. And that can be a given place or a chosen place. And I think that's helpful to know. Like, I don't have to stay here, Mm -hmm. but if I'm going to move somewhere else, then uh, rather than just getting on Facebook, I I need to learn the place. I need to learn the way the place flows. All right, so uh, let's move on. Another thing about this, when we think about, uh, so we're thinking about uh, the urgency. We're thinking about second, exegesis or studying our and learning our culture. The third is understanding the, that the gospel is a public truth about the kingdom of God. And this is something we, we actually took up with uh, with a scholar, Matthew Bates, in a previous... Uh, you can track down and, and put a... Yeah, I'll put in the show notes. Put a link to that in the show notes. But Jesus, when he says uh, to come and follow me, when we, when we receive the gospel, as Romans 1 talks about it, uh, we, we receive, we, we, we give not just the sort of bowing of our head in prayer to say yes, not just an ascent of faith, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, I believe in Jesus, he mm-hmm. saved me. But we actually bend the knee in allegiance, what, what Paul describes in Romans 1 as uh, the obedience of faith. Mm. And so we need to recognize that the gospel is actually a truth, not just about personal soul salvation, but mm-hmm. also about the kingdom of God, that Jesus is king is part of the gospel, which means that the gospel is incompatible with the creeds of enlightenment. That's what I was talking about before. These these are coming into battle. Mm. And it means that we need to help our people uh, and even our our own selves reject two two temptations, which we've man, we've seen this at play. There are two temptations, and James Davison Hunter picks these up in uh in to change the world, which we're gonna talk about in the next episode. One is the temptation to retreat into private religious beliefs. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a sense, sort of just say, I'm going to, I'm going to get away from the culture mm-hmm. and retreat into our sort of enclaves of religious belief. And some people do this differently. Some people are really devout about this, right? You can look at this, I mean, in the extreme form in like Amish communities. Mm-hmm. But some people mean, what they mean by this is, I go to church on Sunday, that's when I'm religious. Mm-hmm. The rest of the week, I'm not. Mm-hmm. We want to reject both. We want to reject this retreat into uh, private religious beliefs and practices, and we'd want to re- reject a kind of uh, Christianizing Christendom take over the world, right? <laughs> uh, Hunter gets into this and talks about this is this is sort of trafficking in Nietzsche's will to power or resentment. Mm-hmm. We'll pick that up next episode. And Newbegin wasn't so negative about about the Christianizing impulse of. Um, of a kind of biblical worldview. He wasn't that negative about that, neither am I, mm-hmm. um, in the sense of Christians were right to put their beliefs into practice in the realms of social and political order, economic order, mm-hmm. scientific order, all those five threads. Yeah, um, Christians were right to do that. And we should we should expect that that would have positive impact on a culture, right? We have orphanages and hospitals and whatnot. Yeah. But... Both of these extremes, so the sort of taking over culture or the retreating from culture, we we want to say no. The the call to be a witness, yeah, is a call to step into, not to retreat from, but not to sort of step over and dominate. Yeah. All right. So, uh, it, one one example that we can see of this in the in the scriptures is Acts seventeen twenty two when when Paul, going into his his Mars Hill speech. He says, men of Athens, and we, we actually have gotten a kind of behind-the-scenes view. He's walking around, and he's, mm-hmm. he's looking at the town, the city. Well, not the town. He's looking at the city. He's looking at the inscriptions. In the, and he says, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. 
what therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. Now, the, the really radical thing that Paul's doing, and, and then he he brings in, he starts quoting like Cretan poetry, and he's he's doing this sort of masterful work of of encountering mm-hmm. the culture with a with a resounding no. What you're looking for is not going to be found where you're where you're looking. Mm-hmm. But he's doing it in a way that's that's um, showing them I respect you mm-hmm. as an image bearer enough to learn about you and to, and to even learn and even go sort of beyond the sort of obvious because I think these Athenian Athenian philosophers probably weren't thinking of themselves as religious. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but Paul's going, yeah, but you are, yeah, right. Be- and here's why, and and so we see this picture of like learning, exegeting the culture, and then bringing the gospel as a public truth that confronts, that encounters the culture. So finally, we're going to land the plane with this. Uh, and, and I and I'm borrowing this from my friend Rachel Gilson. We were in a doctoral seminar. She, it might be that Tim Keller describes his own way of doing things this way, or or it might be that this is somewhere in. Newbegin's work, and I've just not encountered it, but but Rachel talked about this method as being a yes, no, yes. Mm-hmm. And I thought, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. Uh, and she she was using that to describe Keller's way of engaging. Yeah. Yes, no, yes. So yes, no, yes means, uh, yes, you are made in God's image. And yes, your desire to, to find community and meaning and purpose and ritual is good. Yeah. There's a there's a kind of God drive there that God has put in you. This sort of sense of the divine that that John Calvin talks about. That's a that's a yes thing. Yeah. And you can do this even with like someone who's um, struggling in terms of their sexual desires. You can hey yes, this desire for companionship, yeah. this desire to be to have alignment between your embodied soul and your desires. This desire is a good thing, but yeah. no, it's, and then that's followed by with a no of the the sort of um, confronting yeah. of the gospel. No, what you are looking for is not going to be found where you're where you're looking. Mm. And then finally, the yes of uh, the witness of the gospel, right? We are to be witnesses. That we 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 witnessing means that we talk about what we've seen and we've heard. Mm-hmm. And so, so this is the kind of uh, um, sort of missionary encounter: is that we we learn to exegete our culture, we learn the stories and the and the rituals of our neighbors. We recognize that the gospel is not just a sort of escape valve mm-hmm. or a you know. It's not just a soul's salvation for the individual, but it's actually a public truth of the kingdom of God. Mm. And then we we go into our neighbors with this, and this is just one way to do it, the yes, no, yes. I mean, really the idea, that's just a kind of, uh, you know, that's a bonus. That's a vibe. <laughs> that's a bonus vibe. That we can we can go into our community and say, yes, what you're looking for, you, you're right to look for that. Mm. No, it's not going to be found where you're looking. Yes, it's only found in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Yes, it's only found in the gospel. The good life you're looking for, it's actually out there. Yeah. But not where you're looking for it. Let me let me let me confront that with actually the the true good news of the gospel of King Jesus. All right, any final thoughts about missionary encounters? No, no, I think I think we covered a lot and uh it's all good stuff. This is good. This is good. Uh, you know, one last thing I'll say in closing is uh, 
learning to actually, I think the real challenge of this episode and of this kind of idea is in in part because we're going to come around later to how do you present the gospel into a, into a difficult world? How do you do this? How do you put this into practice? Really what we're saying is the step before that is learning is, is, is being a student of our, of our world, of our culture. And this is something James, Jamie Smith, uh, in his book, imagining the kingdom, how worship works describes as, quote, grinding a new lens for cultural analysis, in which we recognize the D and transformative power of practices, communal embodied rhythms, rituals, and routines that over time quietly and unconsciously prime and shape our desires and our most fundamental longings. This is what we want to do, is we want to grind a new lens for cultural analysis. We want to be able to recognize the stories and the worship practices of our neighbors so that we can bring the the gospel as an encounter. We can be witnesses to Jesus as King in ways that connect with our neighbors, that help them to to turn away from uh, creeds and practices and stories that are deformative, transformative in negative ways, and and say yes to Jesus as King and Savior. All right, well, thank you, friendos, for tuning in to The Hammer and Quill, Season 3, Episode 4, Missionary Encounters. If you haven't already, please subscribe or follow The Hammer and Quill on your favorite podcast app and write us a quick review letting us and others know how we're doing. You can give us five stars. You don't even have to write anything. (laughs) Just drop those five stars. If you have any questions or ideas for future podcasts, write in at info at bonhoefferhouse.com. If you want to chop it up about missionary encounters or future cultural engagement episodes, let us know. Next up, next episode, we're going to be talking about faithful presence, an idea from James Davison Hunter's book to change the world. We'll see you then. Peace. Peace.